Good morning. I hope you have your Bibles with you. Open to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8. All 18 verses we'll be looking at this morning. Uh, when I prepare any given week, God always deal, deals with me about what the text says as far as applying it to my life. And sometimes, becoming more often, kind of excuse the expression, hits me upside the head with something, and the text literally jumps out and chokes me. And this is one of those texts I'm just warning you up front. Well, we've come through this story and the, the wall is finished. But we see that the real work has just begun. The people do not see the building of the wall as the ultimate goal. What was most important of all is what happens inside the wall of Jerusalem. And what begins in chapter 8 is why the wall was rebuilt in the first place. Look what happens. Just look at verse 6. Look what it says. They bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. See, it's not about the wall. Right? It's about the word and worship. And as they begin to worship the Lord, a revival, if you will, breaks out. And we see five elements of this worship. Now, this is not comprehensive, but these five things stood out to me. There is hunger for the Word. There is hearing of the Word. There is honor for the Word. The handling of the Word and heeding or obedience through the Word. So let's read the text together. I will have to slow down a couple of verses to read the Hebrew names as best as I can, so bear with me. Verse 1, And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read it from before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at the wooden podium, which they had made for this purpose. And beside him stood Metateah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Menesiah, on his right hand. And Pedadiah, Mishael, Machajda, Hashem, Hashbabadai, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. Ezra opened the book in sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. When he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Joshua, Bani, Shabarabah, Jamin, Ekub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Meosiah, Kalete, Azariah, Joseph Elzabad, Haniah, and Puliah. Ooh, those are a lot of names. The Levites explained the law of the people while they remained at their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so they would so that they understood the reading. 
Then Nehemiah, who was governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. All the people went away to drink, to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which they had been made known to them. Then on the second day, the heads of the fathers' households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe, that they might gain insight into the words of the law. They found written in the law how God had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hills, bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of, every, of, of other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. The entire assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day, and there was great rejoicing. He read from the book of the law, God daily, from the first day to the last day, and they celebrated the feast of seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. They asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. Verse 1, we see that. The people gathered in the great number, and they asked Ezra to get this book. They were hungry for the word. They wanted to hear it. Many of them probably couldn't read it but they wanted to hear it. Are you hungry for the Word of God? Is that why you gathered here today? To hear the Word of God? Not only in the preaching, but the singing, the teaching, and everything that we do? Is that why you were gathered here this morning at 925 for a Bible study? You wanted to hear the Word taught? And explained, will you be hungry for the word come Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? Do you open the word at your home when it's not Sunday because you're hungry for the word? A little boy brought his father the family Bible that was on the coffee table. And as he brought it to his dad sitting in the easy chair, he says, Dad, what is this? And the dad replied, well, it's, it's the Bible. It's, it's God's book. And the little boy replied, then we need to return it to him because we never use it. How about your Bible? Does it collect dust on a table or shelf? Did you bring one with you today? And if you did, do you even bother to take it home because Sunday's the only time you really crack it, crack it open? In other words, are we truly hungry for the Word. 
We will never experience a revival in America due to any election results. We will only experience a true revival when God's people desire and hunger for the word more than anything else, more than money, more than prosperity, more than health care, more than anything else, we hunger for the word. Many of us, myself included, cannot go seven hours without eating. But yet I can go seven days without opening the word of God. We feed the flesh abundantly, but we feed our spirit uh, not properly. No wonder we're in the condition that we're in. The people of Nehemiah, they were hungry for the word, more than food, more than gold, more than treasure. Now keep in mind, they didn't have copies of this to go to everybody. Didn't have the Bible bookstore on the corner. When they heard the word, when someone would stand and read it, that's how they heard it. They longed to hear it. We have many copies and many translations available to us today. We have Bible software that I thoroughly enjoy. I can't imagine the old days of looking at a Greek word and going back and flipping page after page after page to try to find it in the lexicon. Now I just hover over it and hit the mouse and there it goes. With all these different translations and Bible helps and Bible study guides, devotionals, they're all over the place. It seems that we're content here in America not to even crack it open. Their worship, their worship was marked by their hunger for the word. Look at verse 3. He read from it from early morning until midday. That Hebrew word means that first light. They're not time conscious. They were not thinking about, hmm, where am I going to go to lunch? Think about this. They stood for five or six hours a day, day after day. We'll not experience revival until we get off our clock watching. Now, I don't think a service should drag on unnecessarily. However, at the same time, we should not rush it and quench the spirit. We need to be sensitive to the Lord's leading and the attention span of people. And I try not to be long-winded. I won't take advantage of your time. I prefer to get finished before you get finished. I wish we had a mic out there. But there's no excuse for boring preaching. I have to do the prep time. I have to do the study time up front. My goal is to leave you wanting more, to go back and say, what did that text say? What did Tim say about that? And go back and look at it for yourself. Do all the cross-references that you have in your study Bible and do some of that work yourself. Make you hungry for the Word. In verse 3, again, all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Why do we come if we're not going to listen? Why take an hour or two hours out of your day to come to a place that the Word of God is going to be taught and preached and proclaimed, but yet you're not going to take time to listen? Now, there is a difference between hearing and listening. Hearing is the process or the function or the power of perceiving sound. You know something's going on. You can hear it, but you're not really paying attention to it. Where listening is to hear something with thoughtful consideration. Well, you're hearing it, but you're listening. You're taking it in for thought. 
You're not just letting it go in one ear and out the other. You're listening. You're taking it into, into careful consideration. And then how do you apply it to your life? When we say they hear the word of God, in Hebrew thought, there wouldn't be a difference between hearing and listening. When they heard it, they were listening at the same time. And we just dismissed children here for Children's Church. Now, just for the record, since we're talking about worship, Children's Church's purpose is to discipline and train young children the meaning and importance of worship. It's not a goof-off time. They're not that they're playing. It's not a babysitting time. It's a service designed to train them the true importance and meaning of worship. That's one reason they're in here for the first part, that we're all worshiping as God's people from the youngest to the oldest together as a body of Christ. Teaching them. They take up their own offering. They do all that back there. So this worship that they're having in chapter 8 is marked by the hearing of the word. And look at verses 5 and 6. When he opened it, the people stood up and answered, Amen and Amen. Oh boy. Standing to hear the Bible is certainly a sign of respect. We stand up and we cite the Pledge of Allegiance to show respect to the flag. We stand up when the national anthem is played to show respect for our country. Now, many Christians stand for the reading of the Bible for the same reason. But however, I cannot see anywhere in the Bible what tells you must stand when the Word of God is read. I don't see that anywhere. If you can find it, point it out to me, and I'll be corrected. With that said, the best way to show respect to the Word, the Bible, is to be obedient to it and allow it to change your lives. Psalm 119, verse 11. Your Word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. So you can stand up out of respect, and that's fine. But here's the deeper question. Are you allowing it to change your life. See, the power is not in my preaching. The power is in the Word of God. And as Brother Roger mentioned just a few minutes ago, he's promised that his word word would not return void to him. There's power in it. And you notice they say amen and amen. So what exactly does that mean? Well, the Hebrew word means so it is or let it be. It is derived from the verb that means to be firm or sure. So when someone says amen, what they're saying is what has this been said? It's like I said it. I agree with it. I would say it myself and affirms affirms submission to the authority of Scripture. And look at verse 6 again. They did all this while they lifted up their hands, which shows a sense of need with humility and submission before God. They lifted their hands. Why is it that we're so cautious to do so? Some people say, well, it's too easy for people to get carried away. That may be so. I want to remind you that it's easier to cool down a zealot than to warm up a corpse. See, the danger is not us becoming so much fanatics with it. The bigger danger, I would say to you, is being so cold and indifferent, we cannot get excited about the Word of God anymore. We just hear it and go, yeah, that's the Bible. Woo-hoo. We don't get excited about it. 
We don't respect it. We don't fear it. Scripture instructs us and teaches us to lift up our holy hands to him. Psalm 28, 2. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you for help. When I lift up my hands towards, your, towards you in your holy sanctuary. 1 Timothy 2, 8. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Now, I know this makes most of us uncomfortable. I understand but the point I'm trying to make, dear beloved, is God does not expect us to sit here with stone-cold faces. We are emotional beings. We're cre- now, it's all just an emotional. See, we have two things going on, if you haven't figured this out. We have some denominations, some churches are so based on emotion. It's all about the experience and the emotion. The, the opposite of that is so based on truth that there is no emotion. Now, both of those in my opinion, are wrong. It needs to be in the middle. Because regardless if I feel like it or not, it's still the Word of God. And He's here talking to His people. But at the same time, I'm going to be so cold and different not to get excited about it, not to say amen or shout or cry out to God, to sit there like everything's okay, nothing's going on. And look what it says. I read this at the beginning of the, of the sermon. They bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. When or have you ever come forward to bow down with your face to the ground and worship the God? I saw a post on Facebook last year. I think I reposted it even that 2020 was God's great altar call for the whole nation to get our attention. See them standing, saying amen, amen, lifting up their hands. Not just hearing, but listening, being very attentive. You find in verse 7 that the Levites explained the law to the people. It was not enough just to hear the word. Someone had to explain it. We don't just need people to stand and give a talk, motivational speaking, if you will. What we need is preaching of the truth of the word. If preaching is not rooted in the word of God, the Bible, it does not matter how brilliant the orator or how clever the outline. It does not matter how touching the poem or the illustration is because it's not exposing, revealing the power of the word. And I will go a step further. If I'm not using the word of God, I'm not preaching the word of God, therefore I'm not preaching no more. I'm giving a motivational speech at best. Biblical preaching is to read the word, explain it, illustrate it, perhaps the hardest thing of all, apply it. That's why tenure for pastors is important. The, more I, the longer I stay here, the more I get to know you and where you're at. It makes application a whole lot easier than making application to people I do not know. That's the hardest part is application. But it takes work. It takes study to read through the text, to understand what's going on then in context, and then apply it to our lives. In verse 8, it says they're translating it or explaining it to give the sense so they understood the reading. And they did so while the people remained in their place, a little small group per uh, per se. This they did one-on-one if they needed. 
This is discipleship taking place. What did he mean when he said this? So let me tell you. And I'm so glad we have teachers and disciple makers in our midst today. People who take very seriously the handling of God's word. I'm looking at many of you right now. Because I've been in your classroom. I've heard you teach. And I've, heard, and I've seen God move because of it. So their worship was marked by how they handled the word. And their worship was marked by their heeding or the obedience of the word. Verses 9 through 12. See, the goal of biblical preaching is life transformation. It's not just hearing and understanding the word that transforms our lives. It's obeying the word that transforms our lives. When we heed it, when we pay attention to it, we observe it. James 1.22 puts it this way. Prove yourselves doer of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. He goes on to say that's like a guy going into the mirror, looking at himself, then walking away and forget what he looks like. So we can, we can come in here, we can worship. Raise our hands, say amen, amen, and listen. Careful consideration, apply it to our lives. But the real test begins when you walk out those doors. Or the real test will be in here just a few minutes when the invitation is given. Because God is dealing with you now. And that other voice, the enemy is going to tell you, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. You got tomorrow. Don't want to think about it. I think you're a fanatic or anything like that. I, that happens. You know, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. How can we expect anything in our own lives to get better? Or in our community or in our churches, if we don't quit doing the same thing and be obedient to Him. Their transformation began with weeping. Look at verse 10. The people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. What were they weeping over? Their sin. Their separation from God. Imagine the people of God hearing it and becoming so overwhelmed with what they heard. They were convicted of their sin and they began to weep. When's the last time we cried or wept over our own sin, much less the sin of family members, our loved ones, or even the sin of our country? How many times have we got before God with our face to the ground and wept for all the unborn that have been murdered in this country, the abortion? How much have we weeped over the lostness of our own country, the people who are lost and don't know Christ who will spend eternity in hell? Verse 10, do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah and Ezra had the wisdom to step in and encourage them. There was hope and help in the Lord. Now bear with me for a second. The devil wants to turn conviction into guilt. Now there's a difference between a broken spirit and a miserable, depressed spirit. The devil wants to bring you down and keep you down, but God wants to bring you down in order to lift you up. There is nothing sweeter than the joy of the Lord. There's nothing more appealing in our church where it's evident. Because of the joy of the Lord, we can smile, laugh, and enjoy our time with the Lord. 
See, is we weep and we're convicted and we confess it and we repent it. There's relief that comes because of the grace of God. He forgives us of our sin and that load is lifted, taken away as far as east from the west. And that you can have joy in the Lord because he has forgiven, of you, forgiven you of your sin. See, the devil, as I just pointed out, doesn't want to do that. He just wants to keep you down and keep beating you down. God, the Spirit, is convicting you so that that relationship with Him can be restored. So you have life and life more abundantly. This weeping led to joy, which led to obedience. We see that in verses 12 and 17. We see the restoration of the Feast of the Booth or Tabernacles. What that, remember the story. When they came out of Egypt, and they crossed the Red Sea, and they're out in the wilderness, they sent 12 spies over to spy out the land. 12 of them, only two came back. Joshua and Caleb came back and said, yes, the people are big, and yes, um, they seem like giants to us, but if God says it's ours, it's ours. The rest of the 10 said, no, we can't do it, it's just too big. Well, they, they leave the 10 people. And because of that, they spent the next 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And what this feast did is remind the people how God provided for them. Even though they didn't believe him, they sinned against him. He still took care of them by providing for them in the wilderness. And that's what the feast was about. They build these booths, these temporary shelters, reminding them how God provided for them in the wilderness. They hadn't done this feast since the time of Joshua, the text says. That's been quite some time ago when this text was written. It was a long time, but they restored it. The recognition of being encamped in the days of Moses. I can imagine, remember Sambalat, their enemy? What are you doing that for? Why are you making these booze? I can imagine them saying, because God told us to. You see, weeping leads to joy which leads to obedience, which leads to revival. Romans 2, chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? The kindness of God leads you to repentance. That conviction that happens or is happening now, God loves you so much, He wants you to deal with that and bring it to Him. Confess it and repent of it. So your relationship with Him can be restored again. And when that happens, it's like a rock. A heavy weight is lifted off your shoulders. I still remember when I was saved. I I remember just being so full of guilt and shame, not knowing where to go or how to do it. And I heard the gospel all my life until I finally realized something like a, dawn, like a light went off in my head. Well, Tim, you know what you need to do. You heard us all your life. Why don't you just go ahead and do it? Get this weight off your back. So I did. And as I cried to God, it's just like the whole heavy burden was lifted and taken away. And that still happens from time to time because I still sin. I'm a sinner saved by grace. But when you get right with God, there's not a good way to explain it on the fact that it's a joy, but not like a small laughing up and down joy, but there's a, a peace, if you will. That's a better word that overcomes you. 
because you're doing what God has told you to do. In chapter 8 and chapter 9, it's not about the wall. And here's the thing that dawned on me. Perhaps Nehemiah is not really about the wall to begin with. Perhaps the wall was just the means to the end. I mean, the wall was there to restore that place of worship where God's people could go. A man bought a new car for his wife one time. And he put the insurance information in a binder in the glove box. Why we call it the glove box, I have no idea. I have never put a pair of gloves in the glove box. Have you? Yeah, okay. Somebody has. So he put the, the instructions there, okay? And so she has a nice new car. Well, she had an accident. And she was terrified to tell him that she had, she had wrecked the new car he bought her. She was shaken and she was frustrated and she remembered to look in the glove box and as she opened the insurance binder, a note fell out. It was from her husband and this is what it said. If you are reading this, it's probably because you wrecked the car. I'm just glad you are doing well enough to read. I want you to remember it's just a car. You're all that's important. We have a lot to work to do on this building. We've done some already. There's more to do. Always more to do. I mean, buildings require maintenance and improvements from time to time. But as we address those issues, may we never forget what's the most important, what happens inside here. The effect that we are seeking to have outside this place as we go on our way. It's really not about the building, the seats, the lights, the pews, the projectors, the electronic media. It's about the Word and worship. That's what makes this place special. It's, we call it God's house. In a way, I can see why you would say that, but really, really is, it's where the church, you are the church, meets collectively together as the body of Christ to encounter God. Together in corporate worship, just like they did back then. What would we do? Let me rephrase. What would I do if God was to do exactly what I pray for every Sunday? You know what I pray? It's going to sound weird to you. God, I pray that you show up and you show off and show these people the God that I know you are. But shake this place of a foundation and let them know that you are the great I am. Because when you get a glimpse of him and you're truly seeking him, you do not want to leave. I don't want this service to drag on, this place of dragging on. But at the same time, I struggle with how can I put a time limit on what I want God to do? It's not about the building, as I said, the seats, the lights, the pews, the color of the carpet, the ceiling fans. It's about the word and worship. Worship that is marked by us. Worship that is rooted in the word. Worship that is marked by us hearing, listening to the word. Worship that is obvious by how we honor the word. Worship that's apparent by how we handle the word. 
and worship that is evidenced by how we are obedient to the word. I said this a million times. I must say it again. Most people will say, yes, I believe in God or a higher being. Now, some people will disagree about Jesus. But some people will engage in the conversation with you about who Jesus is. But what all of them find so unbelievable is how people who confess to be followers of Christ meet with God week in and week out, and there's no change. No evidence of it. That during a week, we're just like everybody else. As I said to you before I started, as I prepared for today, this message hit me right between the eyes. How about my worship? It doesn't happen just publicly, but we should be worshiping God on our own as well. I will close by saying this. We, here in America, we like to put things in different compartments. On Sunday, I'll dress this way. These are my Sunday clothes. I'll talk a certain way. I'll only sing certain songs. But then come Monday, I'll dress different and even talk different. It's like the rest of the week is completely disconnected from Sunday, which Sunday should be a natural outflow of who I am as a believer that I'm anticipating to hear from God's people how God worked in their week, how to go. And be able to encourage one another. Look forward to this time. Because here's a place I can be myself. We wear masks so much, we like to pretend everything is fine. You tell people, how's it going? Fine. You ever notice that we're halfway past the person before they even respond? How's it going? And they were, they're back there before they even respond. What I'm asking and what God is asking. Can't pretending, take off our masks, say, God, here I am. It's the real me. I'm hurting, I'm frustrated, whatever the case may be, and I need you. Search me and try me. See if there's any wicked way in me that I may confess and repent. That's the invitation this morning. If you feel like your worship is bouncing off the ceiling, it's not going anywhere, perhaps, just perhaps, there's some sin in your life you haven't confessed. God's trying to draw your attention to that. He loves you. Oh, he loves you. That's why he's convicting you. Because it's affecting your relationship to him. Do you have a relationship? Have you ever cried out to God and said, I, I believe who Jesus is. I want to be yours. I give you my life. I give you everything I have. Be my Lord and Savior today. Have you done that? 
If that answer is yes, then what does God convict of you now to take your walk deeper? He wants to go deeper with you. The only person that's stopping you is you. Is you. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time we could spend together. Dear God, I ask that you would continue to knock down the walls and the barriers. Father, may we always be quick to listen to you and to your word. And may we always apply it to our lives. Father, we acknowledge and we confess we cannot do this without you. We desperately need you. Father, remind the ones gathered here, the ones joining us online, remind them all, dear God, how much you love them and how much you care about them. So much so you sent your only son to pay a price we never could. Continue to move. Continue to talk to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please?